You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. The children were playing while Holston climbed to his death. He could hear them squealing, as only happy children do. While they thundered about frantically above, Holston took his time, each step methodical and ponderous, as he wound his way around and around the spiral staircase, old boots ringing out on metal treads. The treads, like his father's boots, showed signs of wear. Paint clung to them in feeble chips, mostly in the corners and undersides where they were safe. Traffic elsewhere on the staircase sent dust shivering off in small clouds. Holston could feel the vibrations in the railing, which was worn down to the gleaming metal. That always amazed him, how centuries of bare palms and shuffling feet could wear down solid steel. One molecule at a time, he supposed. Each life might wear away a single layer, even as the silo wore away that life. Each step was slightly bowed from generations of traffic, the edge rounded down like a pouting lip. In the center, there was almost no trace of the small diamonds that once gave the treads their grip. Their absence could only be inferred from the pattern to either side, the small pyramidal bumps rising from the flat steel with their crisp edges and flecks of paint. Holston lifted an old boot to an old step, pressed down, and did it again. He lost himself in what the untold years had done, the ablation of molecules and lives, layers and layers ground to fine dust. And he thought, not for the first time, that neither life nor staircase had been meant for such an existence. The tight confines of that long spiral, threading through the buried silo like a straw in a glass, had not been built for such abuse. Like much of the cylindrical home, it seemed to have been made for other purposes, for functions long since forgotten. What was now used as a thoroughfare for thousands of people, moving up and down in repetitious daily cycles, seemed more apt in Holston's view to be used only in emergencies, and perhaps by mere dozens. Another floor went by, a pie-shaped division of dormitories. As Holston ascended the last few steps, this last climb he would ever take, the sounds of childlike delight rained down even louder from above. This was the laughter of youth, of souls who had not yet come to grips with where they lived, who did not yet feel the press of the earth on all sides, who in their minds were not buried at all, but alive. Alive and unworn, dripping happy sounds down the stairwell, trills that were incongruous with Holson's actions, his decision and determination to go outside. Hugh Howie is a bookseller. His first novel is Wool. Thank you for joining me, Hugh. Oh, thank you, Rick. Thanks for having me on. This book has two fascinating stories, the story of the book and the story in the book. Let's talk a little bit about your life as a writer and as a reader. When did you start reading and what kind of books did you start reading that made you think, I really love this experience? The first books I chose to read, you know, of course, the first books I read were the ones read to me and with my mom and teaching me to read Dr. Zeus and all that. But the first books I, I picked out of the the store shelves myself were out of the science fiction and fantasy genres. And it was the, the dragons and the knights and shining armor that got me started. And then I moved to spaceships and, and aliens. And the, the very first book that made me think, well, it made me think that 
that young kids could do anything was Ender's Game. And I was 12 years old when I read that book the first time. And I read that Orson Scott Card was from my home state, North Carolina. And I thought, wow, that's a, a job people can actually have. It's a career you can aspire to. And that was the first book that made me think this is what I wanted to do with my life. It's the old uh, quote that the golden age of science fiction is 12. Right. <laughs> so talk about uh, as a kid, did you decide to write? When, did you write when you were at 12 years old? Yeah. So I think the next book I read was Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And, and the very first book I tried to write was a complete ripoff of Douglas Adams, that snark and that humor and that dry wit. And I, I still have the handful of chapters I got through before I gave up. But I, my dream of writing never faded, but I never had the, the um, wherewithal to get to the end of a manuscript. So let's fast forward to you as a, a bookseller, and you have some spare time. Talk about use, deciding to use that spare time to write. And how did you approach this? As an, Had you written stories and tried to sell them? Yeah, I'd, I'd had some um, wonderful comments on not some nonfiction stories I'd written about my yacht captain days. I used to uh, live on a sailboat, and I parlayed that into a career driving other people's boats. And I got into some just amazing adventures in those days, and I wrote some short stories that I put on blogs and, and emailed to friends, and everyone's comments were, you should be a, a writer, and it rekindled this uh, dream of writing for a living. And so when I was writing book reviews and covering book conferences for a website, it, meeting other authors really motivated me to give this a really a solid try. And I came home from one of these book conferences and sat down and started what became my first novel. And I've been turning out books and self-publishing them ever since. Talk about the decision to self-publish and how did you uh, start that book is wool that we're talking about now. So when you started to write Wool, did you say, okay, here's an idea, it's going to be a novel, and you had the beginning and an end, or did you just say, well, I'm going to start writing? Yeah, you know, I had the idea for Wool for a long time, but it was going to be a novel, and I couldn't find the time amid all my other writing to devote to it. So I decided, well, I'll write this as a novelette or a, a short story, and just to get it out of my system. Um, the reason I self-published, my very first book was with a small publisher, and I saw that the uh, method of publication had changed and that the print-on-demand and e-books made it where you could basically publish your book without an, uh, incurring any cost to you as the author and have the same distribution um, as most other major books, which still have a hard time being discovered. You know, you have an uphill battle however you publish. So with my second book, I, I had an offer from the, the small publisher again, and I decided I was going to go on my own. And um, while I was publishing these novels, I wrote Wool as a short story, and it started outselling everything else I'd ever written. So I focused my attention on that and wrote the rest of the novel. Now, how did you publish Wool in segments online, or and how did you sell it online? Yeah, I, I had just the first one up for 99 cents. So it was like a, um, a iTunes song or a, an app uh, in cost, and I think it made people willing to give it a try. And the, the story was short enough that people could finish it. So when I saw the, the popularity of that, I released the rest of the novel in four more parts. So it's a, a five-part series, and people were you know, waiting three weeks to get the next part, and, and a lot of chatter was building online about it, and it really helped raise the profile of the book.
as you were doing this, were you writing it as you were releasing it? So you're there are people out there saying, where's part two? And you're just sitting there trying to write part two? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I, I think part three and four had the biggest cliffhangers. And now people don't have to suffer the weight. They can buy the entire novel in, in one go and, and it works really well as a single story. But at the time, I was getting emails every day from all over the world. And that's when I really knew I was gaining a readership when I was getting emails from Finland and Australia and South Africa saying, you know, when's part four coming out? When's part five coming out? And the challenge was I I had to, had to foreshadow and know the plot ahead of time because I couldn't go back and edit it. You know, the, the workers were already out there. When you started the project way back in the beginning, did you have any kind of map of where we were going to go or did you just have the very first portion that we read, which is essentially Holston's story? All I had to begin with was Holston's story. That was the entire story. And when people wanted more, when you when you see how that story ends, you'll wonder what more they could possibly want. They just they love this world, but there was no clear way to continue the story forward. So that's when I had to plot out the rest of the series, which when when they're all combined and released, it'll be three. Um, it'll be a trilogy, and the first five make one novel together called Wool. Now, uh, there are two subsequent segments, I guess, novels coming out. I know the next one is called Shift. So um, are those were those conceived as whole novels by themselves in a more, I guess, traditional manner? They were, but even Shift was released in three parts. Just uh, each one was about the length of a short novel, about 50,000 words. And uh, I've, I've really enjoyed ha- having readers stay current with the story by not waiting years between entries. Uh, if you pick up Wool today, the second book is already uh, ready and available, and the third and final book will be out by the end of the year. So it's not something you'll be strung along with for, for decades. Is this something that frustrated you as a reader, like reading through trilogies and saying, where's part two, where's part three? Oh, yeah. It used to drive me nuts when I was a kid. And I would ask, you know, is this series complete before I would start it? And I'm still that way. I there's some wonderful TV shows that I won't watch the first episode on until I know the whole thing is done. And my favorite comic books, like Why the Last Man, I waited until all 60 issues were out and then read it, you know, basically in two two weekends. So that I prefer to get it all at once. That's something I've actually done as well with series. You wait until the third book. You buy the first book in hardcover, second book in hardcover. When the third one comes out, you can finally start the first one knowing that they're actually going to finish it too. Exactly. I just made the mistake of starting uh, George R. R. Martin's series, and I'm, I'm regretting it because I'm loving the books, and I know he's not done. So I wish I hadn't picked up that first one. <laughs> well, I, I think that uh, he's got a lot of pressure on him. <laughs> he does. I met him at Worldcon, and he's just the nicest guy possible, and I, mm-hmm. I'm such a huge admirer of his works. Now, I'd like you to talk a little bit. You mentioned Worldcon. So talk about the science fiction fan community. Was that part of the community who first adopted Wool, or did Wool grow into the science fiction fan community? It's done a little of both. It's been a, it's been a very strange uh, success story in that it's had such a wide and varied audience. When I go to signings, um, I get uh, just an unbelievable mix of readers. And um, we've, we have readers picking it up for book clubs. We have knitting groups who I think they accidentally, one of them will accidentally buy the book because it's called Wool, and then realize, okay, this is not, has nothing to do with sheep or knitting, and, and then fall in love with the story. And then they'll email me and say their whole knitting group is reading it. So it's, I'm not sure how it's spreading so much. It just has a very wide appeal. It has a, a strong female protagonist, and it has an older um, 
you know, character set. It's not young. It's not, it's like Hunger Games, but more adult oriented. And uh, I, it's, it's really cool that I've got the science fiction community behind this story and readers who don't normally read science fiction. Well, this is such an interesting success story. So you had, how many segments did you have done as published online before you took it out to a regular publisher? When I had, I think it was the fourth book was out when I got contacted by several agents. And one of them was Kristen Nelson, who I ended up signing with. And I had the fifth book, you know, in draft and I could send it to her. So the the entire story wasn't even complete before people were reaching out to me from the uh, from from the agent side of things. Those were the once I signed with Kristen, she took it to publishers, and we had immediate interest. We just never um, we found we had a lot of foreign deals that we agreed with, and the the film deal was was really incredible. But we didn't have a domestic deal for eight months because we were asking for what we thought was impossible, and we ended up getting. Well, tell tell us a little bit about both the film film deal and your domestic uh, deal. I'm I'm curious about that. Well, the film deal that was that was an amazing process. Cassie Evashevsky from United Talent started shopping it around Hollywood, and she sent me a list of who she was sending it to. And I thought she was out of her mind. She was sending it to Joss Whedon and J.J. Abrams and James Cameron and like all the biggest names in Hollywood. And I thought these these people aren't going to have any interest in this. But we. We had several studios and several producers who were really keen on the on the work, and one of the people who started reading was Steve Zalian, who wrote Schindler's List and Moneyball and Black Hawk Down and all these great, um, uh, you know, he's won Academy Awards, and he loved the material and he has worked with Ridley Scott and thought this would be perfect for him, and so he sent it to Ridley. Ridley fell in love with the material and the two of them, with 20th Century Fox, made an offer. And for me, it was a dream. I had the best screenwriter and the best uh, director in the genre with the the studio whose opening sequence is basically Star Wars, you know, and I, I just couldn't believe it. So I uh, couldn't, couldn't have been happier with the film deal. And it's moving forward. They're writing a screenplay. They've flown us out to Hollywood to do production meetings. And, and we thought, well, we would never have a domestic publishing deal until Simon & Schuster finally offered us what we had been hoping for, which was a print-only deal which we were told big publishers would never do. And and basically, I keep the digital rights and they release a, a big, beautiful hardback and paperback to bookstores. Okay, so you, you still retain all the digital rights, which is, that's interesting because you're still making some money off of that, I would imagine. Yeah, that's where I really, that's where I've been, that's why I was able to quit my day job. That's where I make my living. And so I didn't want to give that up. Even we had seven-figure offers from major publishers and I wasn't prepared to give up the, the, the rights to the digital work for, you know, it's basically they have it for your lifetime, then another 50 years. And that was um, uh, that was uncomfortable for me. Yeah. I imagine so, signing beyond your own life. Let's talk about the, the, the book itself, which I really enjoyed. I think it's really an interesting book. Uh, this is uh, one of the things that interested me most about this, that we have a science fiction novel set in the future, in which the technology is lower than our current state of technology. Right. And I think that this kind of low-tech science fiction is really interesting, and it harkens back to um, George Orwell, 1984, which he originally wanted to call 1948. Yeah, and I think that's one of the reasons the work is so accessible. But if it's the, I, I read it as a dystopia story. It's great that you bring up 1984 because Brave New World in 1984 and— 
Fahrenheit 451. Those are the the classics of that subgenre. And the great thing about uh, dystopia is you get to kind of, um, I don't know, wear down the world instead of build it up and make it shiny. And you look at how steampunk is doing and post-apocalyptic works. I think there's some appeal to um, reverting the environment to a primitive state and seeing how the characters respond and how they survive. And uh, it's it's it goes back to Lord of the Flies and all the you know deserted island stories. And I think uh, anybody can pick up an, an adventure story like that and enjoy it. Uh, you just mentioned a word I think that's kind of interesting, which is adventure, because there's a lot of adventure in this, and this hark must hark back to your days as uh, writing about sailing. Yeah, I think my, you know, I spent eight years as a yacht captain and another five years living aboard a small sailboat, and I think those years really informed my writing. I, I got into a lot of incredible scrapes. As a matter of fact, if I wrote the if I wrote my memoirs, they would be more unbelievable than my fiction, so I really have a lot to pull from and come up with some really crazy scenarios. One of the things I think that's interesting about this book is the way it's plotted. I think part of this is just the way the result of your online publishing process, at least at first. But you seem fearless about the way you deal with your characters in a really very realistic manner. They don't necessarily come to a happy ending. Yeah, the, none of my none of my characters are immortal, but I think, you know, unless you're writing about gods, none of none of no character is immortal, and I think it's interesting that we most enjoy our stories where we the, we end the story at the highlight of the character's life as if nothing else is going to happen after that. So the couple's newly in love and they're just getting married and we stop before we get to the first fight scene, you know, before the dishes are being thrown. So I, I prefer to tell the whole story, and that might include a character's death, and I think it adds a degree of realism and drama. I'd like you to talk a little bit about creating the world of the silo. This is an interesting world-building experience for us as readers because we can almost generally guess more about the world than the characters can once we kind of get into it. And I think that's an interesting decision for you as a writer. Yeah, I, I'm not a fan of huge info dumps, and I really enjoy when the reader gets to discover the world through the um, the inhabitants and the protagonist's um, lens. And in this case, we know a lot more about the world than they do, and that adds a sense of drama. We can um, there, There's a sense that, that their ignorance is our internal angst. You know, we wish we could just tell them what the world was like and what happened. And instead, we watch them fumble through it and find clues, and we're almost a step ahead of them. And uh, I think it, it makes it forms a relationship between the reader and the characters that they're reading about. And that's why I get a lot of emails and comments about how absorbed people are with these characters. I feel like they, um, they feel like they're on this journey with them in a lot of ways. When you created the, the silo, did you design it, like draw a map of it? Yeah, I drew a, well. I drew some schematics, and I kept a note of what level things were on. And you know, the inspiration for the silo. I used to work on these really big yachts, and they're all divided into levels. And at the very top would be, you know, the the millionaires are laying out on their beach towels, and below that is the, um, you know, the owner's stateroom. And then you have the deck, and the guests are below that, and below that's the crew quarters and the engine room. And then I'm at the very bottom in the bilge like fixing a pump and covered in grease. And the silo is laid out a lot like these boats I worked on. And I saw 
how the people at the top lived, and I knew what it was like to be at the bottom covered in grease and turning a wrench. Well, that sounds very familiar and will sound very familiar to anybody who's read your book. I'd like you to talk a little bit about creating the different characters who live here, from Holston and his wife to Mayor Johns and Marnes, and then, of course, Juliet, the protagonist for the majority of the novel. It's really, I get a lot of questions about how do you create characters? Where do they come from? And they almost appear to me uh, fully formed, like a stranger emerging from a crowd. And your imagination just gives you a handful of clues or physical traits. And your, your, my imagination, anyway, just starts filling in every gap with the story. What's their background like? What's their, what were their parents like? What was their childhood? And all these details just kind of percolate, like they froth up. And I don't know where that comes from, but I've talked to other authors who say they have kind of a similar situation where the characters just appear to them. They have a unique voice. And maybe that comes from observing people. It's my favorite thing to do. You know, when I travel to a foreign city, I just walk around with my camera and I want to take pictures of people and talk to strangers. And so my characters appear to me much like people on a crowded city street. I'd like you to talk about, too, about the creating the history, because one of the things that makes this book so interesting is the history of the silo and the history leading to the silo and how we connect those two. That's the big mystery for us as the reader. Yeah, and it's a mystery that I took I took upon myself, the challenge of telling that story. Um, too often, I think, in post-apocalyptic stories, we just skip what happened to the world and we assume we just start from the world as a bad place. And I really wanted a backstory. When I started writing the second part of Wool, and I knew this was going to be a bigger series, I wanted the backstory to make sense to me, and I wanted it to be uh, believable, and I wanted to know how, how the world got like this. So I started writing, just for my own edification, a draft of, of what happened to the world. And after I finished writing Wool, I decided I'm going to tell this story, which I don't know had, has really been done with post-apocalyptic tales. And um, so the sequel starts off in the beginning and shows you how the world got like this and catches you up to where wool ends up. And uh, that was a really fun challenge. And readers, I get comments all the time that people love this prequel even more than the original. As a writer, when one of the things that I really enjoyed about this book were your kind of heroes and villains. And I thought it was fun that your villains were in IT since I spent a, a great deal of IT myself. <laughs> yeah, my first career out of high school was repairing computers for Tandy. And it was in the mid-90s. And people, that was when AOL discs were everywhere. And people were just getting online for the first time. And Windows 95 came out. And um, boy, my, my time spent in a Tandy computer repair center really, I think, just is all in this book. And I, a lot of it's tongue-in-cheek, and I have a lot of fans from IT who, who write me and say, like, what do you what do you think's wrong with us? And really, it was more of a commentary on myself and, and my time working in, in IT. But, I, you know, information is power, and in this story, it's, it's supreme power, and the people who you think are in charge aren't. And I, I think that's more fascinating than just having a, a very uh, transparent power structure. Well, that's one of the things I think that is interesting. This is really a thought-controlled society. And a really important idea in this society and in this book is the idea of taboo. Yeah, and I, th- I think that's true of our society. I think the, um, the strongest um, method of crowd control is making certain things um, just unapproachable. 
and um, in the in the world of the silo, the worst thing possible is to talk about going outside or to to think that going outside would be uh, uh, advisable. Um, yeah, I think the reason taboo is important in the silo is you know if you going outside is certain death, then you are um, uh, you're you're toying with the remnants of humanity. It all hangs in the balance. So there's no room for error here. They have to make certain things just uh, absolutely um, uh, forbidden to, to talk about. And the biggest of those is wanting to go outside, hoping that the world might be a decent place. Well, one of the things I think that that leads to, though, is a kind of a inversion of our reader's experience. Because when once we kind of start to understand the bad guys don't seem so bad. So I'd like you to talk about that's one of the things I think that's interesting in the book is it's a book of gray areas. There's no, you know, there's reasons for everybody to do what they do. Yeah. And I, for me, I love studying philosophy and history. And I think the, the arguments between Rousseau and, and Hobbes and, and their adherents throughout the generations have never really been adequately settled. And that's the heart of the story. Do we need a Leviathan? Do we need a, a, a dictator, an overlord, in order to keep people well-behaved? Or can we set everyone free and expect anything other than chaos? And that's the question the reader will have to, to tackle. And I don't know that there's an easy answer to it. If there was, the argument would have been settled you know, generations ago by much smarter people than myself. One of the things, too, I think that uh, this book addresses really well is technology and the way technology is used in, to control the the people. So talk a little bit about how you have such a great idea of low-tech mind control. Yeah. I, you know, the funniest, um, the funniest emails I get are the ones who just – they can't believe that the silo doesn't have an elevator. And to me, it's so obvious why that's the case. I, I think – Easy transport and the the commingling of different classes is a recipe for uh, uprising, and I would of course want an elevator. But the the people who run the silo know that that would be you know just like not allowing people to have email and to send communications cheaply. You have to write letters and have porters carry them up and down, and that it keeps people confined and keeps their minds more contained and um, keeps their bodies more contained. And to me, it's uh, it was an obvious solution, and it, it just drives some readers absolutely crazy. <laughs> well, one of the things, too, I think is interesting is as we read this book set in the future, I mean, it's it's often said that science fiction is not about the future it's set in. It's about right now. Absolutely. And I, I so I'd like you to talk a little bit about this book. is has a pretty strong political statement when you start thinking about it in those terms. Yeah, to me, science fiction, what it does best is satire and really comments on the human condition. My favorite work of science fiction is Gulliver's Travels. I don't think it gets credit as being a work of science fiction, but it, it certainly is. And um, it, uh, the, what science fiction can do is change the environment that your characters are in in order to highlight a facet of our behavior and some of our, our faults and weaknesses and even our strengths by um, exaggerating them for a fact. And what, what wool does is it takes all of humanity and puts it in one building and a pressure cooker, really. And you really get to see the best and worst in human nature that, that comes out of that. It's a very claustrophobic um, book, both physically and psychologically. And, and that's something that's interesting. I'd like you to talk about developing the psychology 
of of uh, the, this claustrophobic world. And what's interesting is you have two levels of it. You have to develop the world as presented to the characters, and then you have to develop the world as presented to those who are controlling the characters. So there's kind of a level of deception. You have to look at people who are being fooled to a certain extent. Yeah, and I th- even the people who know the truth, I think those are the ones who probably have the worst time of it. They have to know uh, what the world is like and how it got like this and still be willing to keep everyone else ignorant in order to maybe keep them safe. It's, uh, it goes back to your question on the characters having all these shades of gray. Um, I, I, I think the question that might come up for readers is, would they want to know the truth because would it drive them crazy to know or would they just want to be blissfully ignorant and working in the farms and tending their crops and, and not know? And I don't know that there's an easy answer to that. I don't think I can tell you which way I would rather would go. I mean, it's a, it's a difficult choice. You also uh, give us an uprising. And when we see this, it's pretty ugly. And what we see, again, is technology rearing its ugly head, in, in this case, in, in the form of guns. And I think that to see guns developed and built kind of jerry-rigged as a technology is really interesting. Yeah, it's such a simple technology when you when you know how they're made and you have the, the constituent parts, it's really a, a very simple technology. And um, there's an interesting, there's a, you can highlight your favorite passages when you read the, the ebook. And the most highlighted passage is actually one sentence that says, and I'll paraphrase here, but um, killing someone should be um, more difficult than just waving a pipe in their direction. There should be time for your conscience to get involved, to get in the way. And, uh, I, you know, thousands of people have highlighted that passage. And I, I think when you look at the uprising and how it plays out, there, there is an element of, um, you know, you know we, we have a very strong history of arming ourselves in, the, in this country in order to prevent um, the government from taking over. But the uprising occurs very much like um, the, the paradox of what would happen if we, we, we can't protect ourselves from the government with pistols when they have tanks and drones and, you know, B-52s and, what, you know, well, I'm sure those are obsolete now, but everything else they have, it's, um, you know, we, we're not allowed to own hand grenades and bazookas and landmines. So where does that argument not yet. do itself? Right. <laughs> not yet. I'm sure some people would like to. One of the things I think, too, that makes this book uh, appealing to a wider audience is there's some nice uh, character arcs, plot arcs, uh, romances, um, the mayor and Johns and, and, and even Holston and his wife. So talk about crafting those into this other really dark and distressing narrative. I think, the, I think romance is the great uh, commonality with, all, with all, any decent story. No matter how much action and adventure you have, how much mystery and intrigue or horror, I think some sort of human connection is really what draws a reader in. And you mentioned uh, those three romances, and some of them are very quietly done. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's a romance only in glances and in internal ruminations. And I think um, those can be the most haunting and powerful. But uh, I, uh, I don't know. Maybe I'm just an old softy, but I... I think a story with a romance in it is always better. And that there's not a lot of – this isn't Fifty Shades of Grey by any stretch of the imagination. There's no, no, there's no sex and no gratuitous um, romance in that manner. But it's people in love with one another and maybe in a dark place, in a claustrophobic place, that would be something we would need even more. 
as you were writing this, did you like know who was going to, going to find who in this novel, or did it happen as a result of the plotting and the characters? I, I there were some things I didn't expect, and some things that just arose from the from the writing process. And one of those was the character of Lucas, who this stargazer from IT, who um, Juliet has a romance with, and I had no idea that he was going to exist when I plotted out the story. Uh, I actually didn't give uh, Juliet time for a romance, so to have someone kind of sweep in and 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 knock my uh, protagonist off her feet. It felt very realistic. It was like uh, when you're not looking for love and it finds you, and that's really what happened in the story. The the big plot for us as readers is this kind of mystery. At the beginning of the book, we are presented with a very kind of dense picture. We just see a guy going up to do something that he really doesn't want to do and seems crazy, but it's sanctioned by the society he's in, which is clearly something like ours or some descendant of ours. And by the end of the book, we want to know how the hell things got that way. And so I'd like you to talk about plotting that kind of science fiction, how the world got this way mystery. You know, I my favorite thing as a reader is, a, is that sense of discovery. And when it happens gradually and all these different layers or it's, each one's like a, it's like a Russian doll being taken apart, and we have the satisfaction of uncovering one secret, and then we get to tackle the next one. And I, I find that more interesting than a than a book where it's one big secret and you have to read three hundred pages to uncover that secret. And maybe it was the serialized nature of its release, but with this book, you almost get five separate climaxes and and five big uh, reveals and. The, one of the biggest compliments I get from readers and reviewers is that they never see which way the plot is going. They think it's heading a certain direction, and then it, and then it goes another way, but in a very logically and and uh, very consistent way. And um, yeah, that's that's something I work very hard on to try to create a plot that will uh, hold up to scrutiny, but also be uh, unforeseen. You know, one of my favorite scenes in this book was a scene kind of a MacGyver-type scene where they're building something and it's something that, as readers, we know exactly what it is and we know exactly how to build it, but they don't know how to build it and they're kind of jerry-rigging it out of part of this suit and part of this other stuff. And I think it's so fascinating to see a science fiction novel set in the future where they're trying to build something that we had about, what, 1930 or something. Right. Yeah, and I... I I love that steampunk. Uh, I, it's not um, overly done in this book, the the whole steampunk motif, but there's something appealing um, to me about that, about taking a step back and having to relearn old um, methods of doing things. I love pouring through books like The Way Things Work and looking at cutaways and schematics and, and seeing how machines fit together. And nowadays, a lot of things are computerized and disposable and we, we can't pull them apart and replace the gears. But, um, you know, the, the main character in this story is a mechanic, and I think that says a lot about the, the sort of people that I admire. Well, let's talk a little bit about creating Juliet. She's a really interesting character, um, and she has kind of like three different plot arcs. So when you first created this character, I mean, she's set to do one thing, and, but she ends up doing these other things. 
did you know the character you created for part one was going to end up doing part two and three? Yeah, and uh, a lot of it's misdirection. You know, I, I, I really don't enjoy plots that I read that I feel like they're on rails, and you can see how the the character is just being pulled from point A to point C, and they're going to pass straight through point B, and it's just all in a line. For me, there, there were things that I wanted Juliet to discover, but I wanted her to take a very circuitous path to get there. And when, um, you know, that's just how things unfold in real life. They, uh, we, we have detours and we have things along the way that we have to get done. And um, it's more satisfying to me as a reader. And so it's something I set out to, to create as a writer. This book has, a, has an odd economy because everything's contained in the cylinder. I'm wondering how much you thought about the economy of this, the silo and how that worked out for you. Well, and part of the economy is the cost of life. You, you, there's no, you, you have to control growth. So in order for someone to be born, someone has to die. And, um, you know, there'll be 100% um, employment because, you, you know, everyone can do something. And, but, uh, yeah, it's uh, just based on barter. There's, they have chits instead of coins, but it's all about putting in an hour's work and being paid for it and exchanging that for someone else's hour of work. And uh, I, th- I think that concept is as old as time. And, you know, almost every civilization has stumbled upon the idea of uh, you do this for me and I'll do that for you. The other aspect I really liked was the uh, the lottery aspect. Um, this harkens back to a, a classic uh, American horror story. Yeah, that's can you it's just be horrible for parents to have to wait to to be given permission to have a child. It's one of the um, most primal uh, human drives to uh, reproduce and to uh, bear offspring. And I think the the terror of having that left up to your government is something that really drives the plot forward in, in a lot of instances. We're trapped within the world that's inside the silo, but we also get glimpses of the world outside as well. So I'm wondering how far you yourself have gone um, in in this world that you've created. Oh, I've gone all the way. I've written scenes. I've written the last scene of the third book in the in this trilogy, which will take place uh, beyond anything that's been seen so far. And so I know what the world is like out there, and I've written about it, and uh, it gives me something. I I like knowing where the story is going to end up, and it it gives me. The, the confidence that the plot is moving in the right direction because I have the, the end goal in sight. Did you know that when you started the very first story? No, I knew it when I started the second one. When I started the very first little um, wool novelette, that was all I had in mind for the story. But when I started the second uh, part of wool, I had to know where the, the trilogy was going to end. You also have here in this book uh, <clears throat> a theme of sacrifice and self-sacrifice. So and so talk about a society that does that and how you find that, where you see that within our society in terms of the kind of outcasts that we create and what we do with them. Yeah, you know, it's interesting how uh, self-sacrifice is seen uh, in some ways as a weakness um, in, in our society. It's really, if you're not striving to further your own goals and get ahead, you're not um, managing your time appropriately. And I think we don't, you know, we look at someone like a Gandhi or a Mother Teresa or someone like that as just almost naive and, and 
um, well, they must be doing it for attention or something. It, it, it doesn't seem that we embrace people who sacrifice just for the, the sake of it, and we wonder what their motivation could possibly be. And I, I enjoy having characters who can choose to do that in limited circumstances, and I, I think they're, they're interesting for that ability. One of the things I think that uh, makes this book uh, so interesting, too, is your sense of detail when you're describing different battles, describing the tunnels. As a, Your prose is very detailed, and you kind of like, it, this is a very in-your-face book. You're not like ever, the camera's always really close, I feel. And I, and I think, you know, in part that's just your environment, but it's also your writing style, too. I've got a lot of compliments on the the style of writing, and it it just seems like the natural style for this for this story. I don't know that all my books are written with the the same level of detail, but for the uh, with Wolf, the silo is such a huge character that I think um, you know for one the claustrophobic nature makes it hard to pull the camera back. You know everything is tight, but it it also grounds the story in that environment, which is one of um, you know, being confined and being locked in amongst this machine that's keeping you alive and you have to work to maintain it. And that symbiosis, I think, is, is key to the story and the, 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 the rich source of a lot of the descriptive passages. Well, talk about the silo as a character. I mean, was that your first character? It was my first character when I started writing the second book. My when I wrote the very first, well, the, the short story that started all this, the main character was the wall screen and the idea of not trusting your the information being fed to you. And when I started writing the second uh, book, that gave me an, an, the ability to introduce the silo, the world, as a character. And uh, I think that trip that, that Jean's and Marnes take from the up top to the very bottom of the down deep is just a wonderful opportunity to describe the layout and, and the stratification of this world. Uh, so talk a little bit about this, this the wall, because I think that also, <clears throat> it plays a great part in the mystery, the way you lay this out. And I'm, it sounds like your IT background plays a little bit in that as well. For me, the wall screen is basically Plato's cave analogy writ large. It's the idea of not seeing um, the, the true state of things, but seeing shadows dancing on walls. And it allows the characters and the reader to doubt that what they're being fed is an accurate portrayal of the world. And I was actually motivated by seeing, when I stopped uh, my travels as a yacht captain and settled down with my wife, um, all I had uh, as a view on the world was now my TV and 24-hour news and, or the Internet. So I had to trust a filter to tell me what the world was like when I used to traipse about inside of the world and see it for myself. And it got me wondering, if all were shown as bad news, what would that do to our sense of hope, our optimism, our desire to travel and see the world ourselves? Uh, would that make us feel penned in? And the story uh, arose from that that um, kind of sad um, bit of introspection. 24-hour news gives birth to a novel. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, CNN. <laughs> uh, now you've completed the second part and the third part. Tell us a little bit about, can you tell us much about the third part? Does, is it a, though it sounds like the second part is actually a prequel. It starts as a prequel, but it catches up to the same time that uh, takes place in Wool and gives you a different perspective on some of the events. And I think it really, what readers have enjoyed is seeing this uh, outside view of what 
uh, seemed a limited view before. Uh, and with the third book, it picks up where the, the first two leave off, and it's the climactic, um, it, it's the clash between these two sets of characters from the first two books. As a writer now, you've, you've finished this kind of a big world that you've created. Are you, do you have more stories to tell in that world, or are you looking to create other worlds? I definitely want to create other worlds. What's what's really been fascinating to me about this world, it has so much potential for stories that I've had other, I've had readers and other writers approach me about writing some fan fiction in the world. And I've given it my complete endorsement and I've even asked that they put it online and charge money for their fan fiction because some of it is as good as anything I've written. And um, we've, we've promoted some of these stories uh, to the top of the science fiction charts and I, I think there's so much that can be told in this world that I'm I'm going to leave it in the hands of readers and writers to tell some of these stories on their own because there, there's so much, there's almost infinite potential. There's little chance of overlap or worrying about people stepping on each other's toes. So I think it'd be really exciting to see what other people would do with some of these stories. So do you have this under a Creative Commons license? I could do that. I, what I've done so far is people approach me and I just, you know, email them uh, permission because I... I own the copyright to everything, so um, I, I'm willing to sign off on other people profiting off my work. That's a really interesting approach. I mean, don't. What do the film studios think about this? I'm, I just hope they're not listening. <laughs> <laughs> and your publishers? Well, my publishers don't. I, I still own all the rights. With mm-hmm. um, my my foreign publishers have very limited input, and they can only publish what I've um, what I've already uh, put out in, in other languages and in other territories. And I own all the rights here in the U.S. But I, I can't imagine if anybody really looks at it. The the more you have uh, in this world, the better it serves everyone. It's it's such a, a rich playground, and you're just inviting more people to come and partake. Now I notice on your Facebook page you have a kind of an image that looks like uh, Juliet, and I'm wondering how much is that something you created? Is there some art that's associated with this as well? Oh man, I wish I could have drawn that. That is, uh, that's a brilliant piece of artwork by Jasper Schurz, who's a uh, a Danish master artist. He's um, designed currency for Fiji. He does um, ad uh, campaigns for Fortune 500 companies. Uh, frankly, I couldn't afford him um, to to do any kind of art like that. He sent me that piece and and a piece for my Molly Fide series just out of the blue as a fan, and and now I'm trying to commission him to to do more cover art, but. Um, yeah, he, he that's all hand-drawn. Uh, he's, he's a genius, and uh, I'm a, probably a bigger fan of him than he is of me. Well, tell us a little bit about your Molly Fide series. This is my first book, and it was really inspired from my travels on, on boats, and a, a big trip I did with my wife. We had this 74-foot yacht to ourselves for two weeks as we were delivering it from Antigua up to Fort Lauderdale, and we swam with whales and jumped off waterfalls and had all these incredible adventures. And we'd only known each other for a few weeks. So we just fell madly in love. And uh, 11 years later, I am writing a series of um, science fiction stories where a young couple have a spaceship and they travel from planet to planet where we traveled from island to island and, and getting all kinds of adventures. But uh, I have as many fans of that as of wool. And, and I think uh, that's what I'll return to when I finish this series. It sounds like uh, adventure plays a big part in your writing. It does, and also adventure that makes you think. I, I want, you know, and it's like Gulliver's Travels. 
on this in or a Pixar film on the surface is adventure or slapstick comedy, and beneath that is something deeper. And you can enjoy the work on either of those two levels or on both of them. And that's something that I work really hard to to generate. Well, we'll be looking forward to enjoying your work on every level. I've been speaking with Hugh Howey. His new novel is Wool. His forthcoming novel is Shift. Thank you for joining me, Hugh. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a great time. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.